Welcome everybody to the another episode, back the first episode of 2023 of Blue Bird and Radio. Um, Zach here, and as always, Matt as well. How you doing, Matt? Doing good, man. Awesome. Glad to hear it. So, uh, true to form, we recorded this episode already, and it went to hell. So, <laughs> we're uh, we're re-recording uh, today. And I'm up at the university. I know what went wrong. It was a connection error at my house. So my computer is literally hooked into the internet, the ethernet cable for the building. So I'm not going to be dropping internet anytime soon. So um, that's good. But we hope not to have as many bugs as we did last year. And obviously this year we're, we're, we're not doing great, but we're going to do better. So there you go. Uh, and we're happy to have um, you know, this year ahead of us feel like last year and the year before were our years to kind of figure out how the hell this was all going to go down. And now we have our format and now we're kind of able to spread our wings and fly the way we want to. So today uh, it's just Matt and I, and we're going to try something new, which is came to realize that we're bringing on guests and we have, and, and that's wonderful. We love bringing on our guests, but we bring on guests to talk about species of snake that we may have kept. We don't necessarily consider our snakes, if you know what I mean by that. And what that ends up resulting in is that we don't end up having episodes for the snakes that we're, we're well known for. So our uh, first episode of the year is just going to be the two of us, but I'm going to be interviewing Matt, and we're going to be talking about a rat snake that I know everybody loves, uh, probably one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful rat snake on the planet, Mandarin rat snakes, because that's one of the snakes that Matt is absolutely known for in herpetoculture. So I figured there's no better person to talk mandarins with than Matt. And so we're going to go down that path. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we have, you know, a bit of an announcement. Um, because our schedules are so chaotic, we were trying to figure out a way to keep the podcast rolling when we can't be present or one of us can be present. So we've come up with our version of Rob Stone for a Morelia <laughs> Python radio. Whenever Eric or Owen can't be there, Rob kind of becomes the co-host. Uh, so we're going to bring on Clint Bartley uh, as going to be our surrogate Zach or surrogate Matt <laughs> when we aren't able to be here given our uh, crazy lives that we lead. So that was kind of Matt's brainchild. Do you want to speak a little bit to that, Matt? <clears throat> yeah, so... You know, it, this has been kind of the challenging aspect, and, and Zach and I, you know, we're both very understanding with each other's schedules, and we try to coordinate it, um, but sometimes it gets challenging, uh, especially with traveling for work or traveling for research, and when thinking about someone that we could bring on as a, a cohort to this, um, there was no other person that I thought that would bring um, more enthusiasm as well as entertaining capabilities than Clint. So we're excited to have Clint join this. Um, Clint is also extremely excited to come on and talk to as well. I mean, understandably with his new business with Metazotics, I mean, yes. it'll bring on a whole different aspect of, you know, herpetoculture, but also the business aspect, I, I think, which is also interesting too, to see different trends that are going on. Um, the other challenging part that Zach and I have had with doing this uh, podcast, and I, I think it's just a means of how we need to approach it in certain situations. But, you know, we have a long list of species that people would like to have talked about and discussed. 
the challenging part of that has been having guests that are willing and wanting to actually participate. Um, you know, within the hobby, there are a number of more senior members, um, you know, and, and some of their knowledge, you know, is so profound and they've gone through so many different things within their collections. But unfortunately, some of them don't want to participate within a podcast or, or share that knowledge. So, you know, one of the things that Zach and I have even talked about is, you know, some of that maybe we'll um, approach it with different species profiles based upon our experiences, too, because we obviously want to present that information out to the generalized public, um, but also identify some of those species that are of interest to as well. And, you know, within the three of us going forward with Clint, um, we all have a tremendous amount of experience with some of these uh, species. And I think from some of the conversations that we have, maybe with some of these more senior level keepers, we can then take that information and relay it into a podcast that we can actually present going forward. Absolutely. And we're here, we're here to educate and we're here to get the, the, the information out there in a, I don't know, more modern medium. Uh, many of us, myself included, grew up with the good old days when Reptiles Magazine wasn't what it is today just leave it at that. So we had like that outlet, we had the vivarium uh, and the individuals that were writing those articles in the the nineties and the early two thousands are now they've got two more decades added to their belt as far as their experience. So we're, we're, we're trying to bring them on At the same time. There's plenty of keepers that have been doing this for, you know, a shorter period of time, but that certainly doesn't mean we don't want to talk to you as well. Uh, and we've highlighted several of those individuals last year. So one thing that we definitely need are guests. Uh, I'm going to be putting together and maintaining a spreadsheet this year. I said I was going to do it last year, and I didn't. But uh, I, I, I took some time over my break and actually got organized as far as the podcast was concerned. And now I'm in a position where if you send – Animal or species you want us to talk about, I can put the, plug that into the sp spreadsheet and then keep my eyes open for somebody that we feel is, is um, capable of talking about that. And then the other thing is uh, you can totally be your own advocate. Please don't think – if you're sitting there thinking, man, I've bred X four or five times, or you don't even have to breed it. Uh, if you've kept X for X amount of years and you've raised it from a neonate to a – you know, adult that's doing great and you feel like you could contribute the greater good of colubrid herpetoculture, by all means, you know, reach out to us. You can reach out. I think the best way to reach out in that capacity is you can send Matt or I a message, which is great, but you know, we both live crazy, 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 crazy lives um, and get lots of messages a day. I use Messenger as my main means of communication with both my undergrad and graduate students. Uh, and I use Instagram for the same thing. So if you send one directly to me, uh, it may get lost. But if you go on and you find uh, the Colubrid and Colubroid Facebook page and you send a message there, obviously that both Matt and I have access to, which is a good thing. And it's kind of a one-stop shop and all communications that are going there I know are associated with the podcast. So I'm not, you're not going to get lost in the random crayfish questions uh, message, you know, from all of my students. So that's kind of what I would recommend we do on, on that front. And by all means, 
let her rip. Um, be great example. Roy Blodgett, I, I sought him out because I had a handful of people saying, Spilotti, Spilotti, Spilotti. Um, so we do hear you. Uh, we just want to make sure that um, we have a little bit of time to get the person. But if you're sitting there thinking, I breed Oxyropus, just as an example, I don't know anybody that's doing that other than maybe Stan. Um, so by all, by all means, like reach out and we will totally have an Oxyropus episode. So that's kind of the way that that works. But that's one of the new things for 2023 that we are going to be um, adding and doing. Uh, so there is that. As far as updates are concerned, um, I don't really have many. I'm here at school right now on a beautiful Sunday morning, uh, kind of, as I was saying to Matt before we started recording, really enjoying how peaceful it is because normally I'm in here and it's kind of unadulterated chaos. So um, there's that. But, you know, all my animals are under rumation. All the grow outs are up still being fed. Um, I don't really have much to report other than I am picking up one new animal that I'm extremely excited about. Uh, um, Matthew Dove, who's a fellow Nerodian nerd like myself, um, last fall he brought in a uh, brown musarana, which is Paraphomophus rustica, or rusticus, sorry. Um, very it's a very large brown snake. So there's probably quite a few people. If you look it up, you might be like, why the hell does he want that? Well, I kind of wrote a book chapter about them. And the only other person I knew that had them was Jen Joseph. Uh, and I spent so much time learning about those animals that I thought, I don't care what I can get when I can get my hands on one of those. I'm going to have it. It's going to be in a big display enclosure. And, um, yeah, so Matthew wanted to move the mail he brought, he, he had on to, you know, greener pastures. And I don't think I've sent a message so quickly in my life. I don't think I finished reading the, if you're interested, PM me. And I was already typing. So that's kind of a fun addition. Um, anybody know, listening knows where there's a lady by all means, um, let me know. Uh, I would love to get those guys rolling. Um, everybody knows about Boiruna maculata, the uh, false moserana, or just what we call moseranas in herpetoculture. Um, this is related to that, obviously, uh, but um, just as easy to breed, uh, more temperate, basically South America's version of a king snake, uh, if you want to look at it that way. But that's that's my big, big news, and that guy will be arriving this week. So. That's all I have as far as updates for me. Matt, anything up with, in your universe? Well, most of the stuff I have right now is pretty much down for the winter, too, as well. Um, still checking on things weekly and making sure everything's going well. Um, I did keep up a number of hatchlings just to keep feeding and get some more size mm-hmm. on them. And in the next couple of weeks, I'll I'll start pulling up um, some of the Mullendorfi that hatched this past year, um, some of the mandarins and things of that nature, um, because typically those animals will require a slight cooling period to actually induce the the feeding. And also with the way the weather has been here with the Midwest up, down, up, down, up, Mm -hmm. down, um, you know, that can really trigger animals to stop feeding too as well. Um, 
and you know something we've we've always talked about was you know temperatures and how cold do you have to get something i mean right now the respective room where i keep most of those asians i mean it's only the coolest that i'm able to get it right now is about 61 um in terms of day temps and then at night it typically drops down into like the the high 50s and things of that nature but you know there's no lights on in that room you know there's also you know, no feeding being done. And as we've really kind of talked and talked about formation in one of our episodes from 2022, you know, all of those cues play an important part, especially for breeding these species coming in the spring. Um, but that being said, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of messages related to, do you have any Molendorfi for sale? Um, did you catch out anything? And the answer to that question is yes, I did hatch out some. Um, most of the stuff that I have going into 2023 is actually double hets. Um, they're het hypos and het aberrant animals uh, mm-hmm. for a longer term project. But one of the things I've seen over time uh, with Molendorfi is sometimes I think related to their long incubation, which is, I mean, these hatched out at 120 days. Um, they ended up having short tails um, which doesn't affect them, but I have seen it a couple of times where like the tail itself isn't um, kind of like just nub, if you will, or something yeah, like that. Up. Yeah. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them uh, this year, uh, but I do have some Molendorfi. I just haven't posted anything on it. Um, some people know that I hatched them out. Um, other people that did hatch out some Molendorfi um, are PJ Khan, um, I saw he had some from Handmade Herbs. So if you are looking for moles, those are some people you might, or that is the person to connect with potentially for this upcoming year. Um, but other than that, in terms of my collection, um, as I've kind of talked about in the past, my collection is actually going to get smaller. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of that is, and, and this is something, you know, a lot of us often have to think about too as well. Uh, from an ethical standpoint and how you actually keep animals and what is the best for the animals. So <clears throat> for some people that may have seen uh, posted, um, Kevin Sheehan received all of my Texas rat snakes. I didn't couldn't find a better person to work with them. And that's really his passion and his project going forward. Um, and Clint will actually be taking a whole uh, rack from my house filled with animals to this coming spring. So um, I, I think he's excited about that, too, as well as he was over a week or two ago. Um, he ended up vending the indie show and stayed over and we talked about everything and worked out details of that nature. Um, but one thing a lot of people need to recognize and review sometimes is when the hobby becomes more work, you start to lose your passion. Um, so I needed to do some self-reflection and look at what I was doing in my collection personally to just focus on the animals that I enjoy the most and what I want to really proceed with going forward. Um, so all of the Asian animals will be staying here, but you know, some animals, um, more common things will likely disappear from my collection going forward in the years. Um, You know, and and that's that's just something, you know, you have to take into self-reflection, I think, as any hobbyist, because, you know, for some animals and, and this is very much the truth is, you know, within the hobby, there are select people that only work with certain species. Um, 
you know, and, and that's something in a, the podcast that we scrapped uh, a couple weeks ago that, which is a duplicate of this one. Um, we started talking about uh, conservation biology and keeping of animals. And it kind of went into uh, a more detailed, I think just kosher and, I mean, something we'll probably won't be able to replicate again in terms of conversation, but I think it's something we can always talk about too as well. Yeah. Um, because I, from my personal standpoint in the hobby, a lot of people want to talk about how, well, I'm, I'm doing conservation keeping. I mean, no one in the hobby does conservation keeping. This is very, very different. Um, you know, conservation biology and, and keeping of that nature is typically when they're starting to look at repopulation of animals in the wild, um, where people will breed the animals, release them. And I mean, significant work has been done with Eastern indigos and it's, it's yeah. made a tremendous, um, you know, growth in that aspect and that animal in terms of knowledge, not only about husbandry and reproduction of that species, but you know, we've we've grown and learned a lot, especially with pit tagging, learning about their ecology, um, learning about um, their natural biology. And this is something that I think is always pretty cool. Um, and even working with like Kevin Messenger on uh, the Asian rat snakes and kin of greater China is you really take a person who's in herpeticulture that breeds the animals and understands the biology and then you, you take it with someone that, you know, has the academic background and that's scientific and you bring those two people together and it really kind of um, exposes that nature to as well and really presents a more rounded um, media to actually extrapolate and grow upon to as well. Yeah, 100 um, percent. But I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, a lot of people know, a lot of people don't know. Um, in my day job, as a pro, you know, I'm a professor and a biologist. And if we look at what kind of biologist I am, um, <clears throat> a crayfish biologist, starting to use the term herpetologist a little bit. I don't know what exactly you need to have be a card carrying herpetologist, but I am like I have grad students and. I have published a couple papers in the past year in that realm, but I still don't really feel like I have that cap. But one cap I absolutely feel like I've done enough work on to, to be able to say I am is a conservation biologist. And I do listen to podcasts a lot. Uh, and when I listen to them and I hear about, like, we're doing conservation, I don't know if we're doing conservation, like you said. Uh, to just because you're making more of an animal does not mean <laughs> that you are doing conservation. I, with the crayfish work, am deeply involved in the propagation of a species that is endangered. And I have the skill set to propagate that animal. I have the uh, facility needed to propagate that animal. And one thing that, and I have the knowledge base to know where the animal needs to go in the wild once we get them. And at this point in time, I'm not propagating the animal. Drives me crazy, full disclosure, because just it's not just a simple act of making more crayfish. What I have to do before we can even get to the point of propagating, and I know that they've done this with the eastern indigo snakes. I know they've done this with Louisiana pine snakes. Those are just two that are here in the States. Is that I had to go out into the wild 
and take samples from every single known extant population of the crayfish, which that took a whole summer to do. Then I had to run genetics, and then I had to identify where the unique genes are because it's not a simple matter of me going out and grabbing every one of these endangered animals and putting them together and saying, breed, let's make more. But you also have to kind of go to great lengths to preserve the unique genetics that are spread across the organism's geography and figuring out that whole process. That's like step one before we start propagating. And that's taken me, I got caught up in some bureaucratic garbage because of um, COVID and not being able to travel to do field work and all that kind of stuff. But I got that grant in 2019 and it is now January of 2023 and we are just now writing up the report. But before I can, you know, so now I know which gene populations I need to preserve and how to preserve them, but I still can't propagate them because there's nowhere to put them. The problem is that the habitat is so trashed out there that step two in this conservation process is I've, we've got to do a lot of stream restoration. And so we're starting that process. Um, <clears throat> so if we create a bunch of crawdads and we have them in, in human care, that's not doing anything, any, any good if we don't have a place to release them. And I can't necessarily release them where they already exist because now I'm going to go above carrying capacity. Uh, so when it comes to this whole propagation and making more animals and all that jazz and we're doing conservation, I don't think we're doing that. Um, I, I now work with the Orion Center for Indigo Conservation. In fact, I'll be going down there two weeks from now. Uh, and I can flat out tell you after seeing what Orion has done uh, with the indigos, um, yeah, they're augmenting populations, but they didn't even get to that point until they had done survey after survey after survey after survey to get an idea of what the actual population viability and biology was. Because the one of the worst things you can do is make a whole bunch of something and feel good about it. That's great that you've done that. But if, if you don't know how many are in the wild where you're going to be releasing it, uh, then you got a problem. And then furthermore, we're not releasing snakes. That's a really bad idea, guys, <laughs> to breed snakes in your house and then just you know go out and, and, and let them go. So I've thought about this a lot. I think that an area where we can help um, is kind of what we're doing or, or, or what you're doing actually, Matt, where you've, you, you've generated your snakes. You wrote, you helped Kevin with the book. We've sold those as a fundraising opportunity. And now you know, money is coming into my laboratory where we're going to train a future scientist on, on a skill set that you need to be a conservation biologist. And then we're going to do some science. Um, one thing that I think would be incredible. I think about this all the time. Uh, everybody knows that my first time at Tinley was this past October. And I, and I've talked about how I walked around for like the first hour, like I was completely out of it. Like I was a zombie. I just couldn't comprehend what my eyes were seeing. And I was thinking, what would happen if the promoters of Tinley were to increase the ticket price by $2 Everybody's going to go, but that's not going to be enough to, to dissuade people to, to go to, to Tinley. And then pick your conservation initiative. 
It could be a frog project, a turtle project. Um, it could be buying rainforest in Peru. Any of the above. And every single person that walks through that door contributes $10 towards that. And then we take that money and we put it into a conservation initiative. That would really get people's attention, I think. And I think that that's kind of a way that we can use herpetoculture for good. Uh, if and, and to be brutally honest, it would also be a way to combat our negative image because there are plenty of animals out there that need some some help. And whether we like it or not, yeah. to do science and to buy land may, means we need money. And that is the one thing that herpetoculture can absolutely do is generate the funds to move forward with a conservation project or initiative. So, no, wholeheartedly agree. I mean, Zach, you know, um, you know, we started talking about participating and doing science and really kind of reviewing what we could do, you know, jointly. I mean, that's, this is my next step, right. In her mm-hmm. culture. Um, you know, I think that's, this is where I'm going. I mean, I've always loved science. We've talked about it. I mean, I went and pursued masters and PhD and I mean, that's, that's something you want, right? I mean, you want to contribute, you want, because if you're not publishing and you're not doing science, you're really not contributing to the future of science and herpetoculture by sharing information and things of that nature. I think is really kind of the forthcoming aspect. And I think this is really something that will really kind of show some of like how you can join these two forces, academia, <laughs> research, and then also culture together. And I think that that's really where um, I think moving forward, we have so much potential, like you mentioned. I mean, even with different contributions that could happen. I mean, when you really look at, and if some of the people listening to this have never researched or looked at it, um, I definitely recommend looking at La Salva, um, biological mm-hmm. station down in, um, South America. I've, I've visited it and it's amazing what has happened and how some of those contributions and growth aspects in terms of science, but also the purchase of land has really helped contribute yep. to upcoming scientists as well as academic programs. Um, you know, in, in our last talk, we really kind of dove into this. I mean, one of the things that I always thought would be extremely cool is like, how cool would it be? Like if you could actually mesh people together and like one person focuses on one species, you know, like for instance, like Kevin's now working with Texas rat snakes and really focusing and really growing the interest in what's available. But if you had someone that did, you know, Baird's rats and really just kind of grew that together and grew that um, aspect of it. I think there's a lot of um, growth in that sector in terms of just focusing. That's why I always think in terms of um, the relative nature, um, you know, it's one of those things when uh, you really start to look at it, you know, there is so much potential. It's just how do we need to actually push that with it? Yeah. So. Yep. I agree. And this is definitely kind of the good side of herpetoculture too, because whether we, um, the NPR guys just put out an episode where they did a deep dive and they basically had an honest look at herpetoculture as it stands today. And it's a really good episode and I encourage everybody listens to it. But like, we want to be, 
this discipline wants to be taken seriously, um, and we don't want our rights to be taken away. But then if you look at, like, the outward-facing face in social media and all that, it's not all bad. I don't, I don't, I actually think it's a little disingenuous to say that, you know, we all just suck. I don't think we all suck. I think that there's a large portion of us that sucks. Um, and whether we like it or not, the loudest voice in the room is the voice that's heard. Uh, and so us little introverted nerds of the world that are doing this kind of stuff, I think we need to be, have a slightly louder. That's one of the reasons why initially I wanted to do the podcast because I, not that I'm being elitist here, but I just know the way that I approach this. And I also live in those conservation circles as well. And I thought that if, if this had a face that was very public, it, it might be a way to kind of present to our detractors. Well, here's actually another way that we go about doing this. Um, and I think that that is actually kind of, kind of working uh, on this conservation topic. Um, the project herpetoculture guys, Roy, they interviewed Jordan Russell. I highly recommend y'all give that one a listen. If you like this topic, um, I was listening to the, to what Jordan was saying about conservation and herpetoculture and was literally like, uh, I, I was yelling out loud because I loved what he was saying. It was, it was spot on to my view of how, you know, all this conservation work and blah, blah, blah uh, can be done. But we will absolutely, if you like this talk, let us know. Because one of the kind of side thoughts that I thought about doing with a couple episodes this year was almost doing more of a, like, what does it take to actually do a conservation project? Because I, I, I don't think we uh, – I'm in that universe, and I know what it does. And I, I also know it's not a fast process. It is really, really maddening how you're working with animals that need help now and you have to jump through bureaucratic hoops that slow down the dogs and it literally will make you crazy because it's made me a little crazy. Um, but I think kind of having some episodes where we discuss that might be uh, might be pretty cool. Uh, or you might be listening to this and thinking like, I don't want to hear this stuff. Let us know that too. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, the opposite side of the coin is welcome as well, and we'll we'll do what we we need to do. We could always have it like in one isolated episode, and if you don't like this conversation, then you just won't listen to that episode. But um, that's kind of that's that's some stuff to think about. Um, another thing, and this is this might ruffle feathers, but like we do all these auctions for U.S. Arc, and I totally am not saying that U.S. Arc does not need the cash. But if we were to do, if we were to pick one conservation project and figure out a way to do auctions for that and basically have this massive conservation effort that involves a snake, frog, turtle, whatever, is being funded entirely through herpetocultural circles, you can't deny that once it's happening. Like, that is that is a thing. A great example is um, Justin Eldon, who's the curator of herps at... Um, St. Louis Zoo. He's a wonderful guy. Uh, he's part of a crew of people that runs this or, uh, this nonprofit called Highlands and Islands. And like, I got nothing but respect for Justin because in his in his peeps because they just kind of are in the background and they find a, a, a place on the planet, usually in Central America, that there's a snake and there's people that can study it that are you know uh, from the country. And then he basically 
I don't know how he does it, man, but he figures out a way to get somebody paid that's from the area. So we're not whitewashed. It's not like Westerners are coming in and getting paid, but rather we have people that grew up in Venezuela, Costa Rica, whatever. They're being trained and they're being paid to go out into the wild to then study a given animal. And one of the animals that they, they are working with, if you go to his Facebook page, you can see the post, are black-headed Bushmasters. And I'm he's doing that work in OSA. West Liberty is now getting ready to do stuff in the OSA Peninsula. So I you know, reached out and I talked to him. And it turns out that where these Bushmasters are, you know, $300,000 would buy a tremendous amount of rainforest where these snakes are. And then those snakes would then be ultimately protected. And if you think about it, $300,000 seems like a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of things, it really isn't. And I just was thinking, what would happen if there was a push across herpetoculture circles to generate the funds needed to then buy the property, to then create the black-headed Bushmaster Reserve, and then we, you know, give money to Highland, we help Highlands and the Islands fundraise and then they would basically be there to support the locals who then gather the data and then hand it off to scientists to then generate the information we need to save black-headed bushmasters like that would be insane and the other thing is that's not like pie in the sky that can actually happen that's not something that's beyond reality um and i think that you know if if, if X amount of dollars went to U.S. ARC and then like 1% or 2% of what money that was raised. Or even if U.S. ARC backs something like that. Um, how the hell can, can I believe that when you have opposition that you, you show, you put your money where your mouth is. And so if we're saying we're doing conservation, then why the hell don't we just do some conservation? Like there it is. Yeah. So, I mean, rant. <laughs> well, and you really think about it. I mean, it also helps your uh, social image too, as well. Yeah. Oh, entirely. Yes. You know. Mm-hmm. That then we then the loudest voice in the room is doing what we say we do. Right. What a concept I mean, then? <laughs> when we had Kurt on, I mean, mm-hmm. we talked about the hobby, we talked about the negatives of the hobby and things of that nature. But when you're presenting and pushing towards something that is, it brings so much positivity to it and attract so much and even in the future could help contribute towards even more students learning about the animals, um, the biology, the ecology of the area. I mean, it's, it's a win-win for everyone. Yes. hundred percent. So even though that doesn't have anything specifically to do with mandarin rat snakes, (laughs) (laughs) we feel like that conversation was worth having again. Um, because it's something that I know Matt is passionate about and, you know, I am beyond passionate about it. And in case you couldn't tell, we both think about this stuff all the time. Um, this is the way that a double het lavender popsicle purple hippopotamus corn snake could actually contribute directly towards conservation in the form of dollars that could go towards acquisition of land um, or acquisition of equipment so that, Justin's crew has better radio transmitters, you know, that's absolutely the way that, that we could help. So, okay. Are we ready to talk Mandarins? 
Yeah, okay. let's jump into it, man. I mean, that's okay, the cool. original topic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're 35 minutes in. Um, okay, so, uh, you know, I was walking around my neighborhood doing, trying not to be, um, get my steps in, and I, I that's when I think, and I was thinking about how um, the format for the book chapters, for the book that I am hopefully done with, uh, if I were, if we were to follow that format, we would essentially be able to, in the in in, in the platform of a podcast, cover the nerdy natural history biology of a species, and then at the same time, and once we present that, and with the husbandry of the species in question, and many of you know, I wrote a paper, um, which anybody can get. All you got to do is type Loafman natural history into Google, but kind of it was my. My brainchild. I'm certainly not the first person to think this. I just wanted to present it in a way that people could follow it as a protocol of how you could use biology and natural history to drive your husbandry methodology. And so we're going to put that to practice today um, with Mandarin, Rat Snakes, and Matt. So the first part of this is going to basically be a discussion of the taxonomy, distribution, habitat, and ecology, general biology of mandarins. And then when we get that under our belts, we're going to segue into the husbandry of the species. So, Mr. Most, um, leading off, would you kind of introduce the genus that mandarin rat snakes belong to, the other species that might be in said genus, and then we'll we'll throw in there where these animals occur on the planet. Yeah, for sure. So, <clears throat> you know, when we talk about mandarins, I mean, we're looking at... Uh, Eupruphiophis uh, mandarinus, right? And when we look at that specific genus and how that is actually structured, we've seen other animals that are being presented in this area, right? Um, some of these are not common within herpetoculture, including the pearl banded um, rat snake too as well, which, you know, if you look them up, they're kind of an exclusive uh, species there's only been a handful of people that have actually bred them in China. Um, they are fairly rare still in the trade. But you also have, for instance, the Japanese forest rat snakes, too, as well as part of the same genus. And when you're looking at these animals and you start looking at, you know, the classification of that genus and then also how these different animals have been basically broken off into different areas, um, or of a species, you know, you start to see some similarities related to the head structure, the scalation, the patterns of the animals. Um, so it's by no surprise that these are all within that same uh, genre of, you know, animal. The aspect of them, I mean, they are just such a significantly, you know, beautiful animal, right? You know, ranging from you know, light grays to yellows. Um, sometimes, you know, there are other phenotypes. There are also uh, localities of these animals um, because when we look at their natural distribution of where they're actually found, I mean, it's a huge area, right? I mean, yes, you look at India, Myanmar, uh, Vietnam, Taiwan, China. Um, I mean, there's just so much in terms of that area. I mean, when you look at China, right, on a map, it's huge. Um, and there's probably a lot going on, you know, that we don't know in terms of distribution. But I think it's very interesting, like when you start to look at, um, what is it, iNaturalist, I think, where yes. like uh -huh. if an animal is found somewhere, you can tag it. 
to identify it's been found in this specific area. But in terms of, you know, some of the people that have done field work or some of the images that get posted to, um, you know, Instagram or iNaturalist, um, there's just so much difference in terms of the distribution and the phenotypes that are naturally occurring, right? Um, and I think it's interesting, too, when we really start to talk about where these animals are found, I mean, their distribution in those areas is plays a huge part when we start to talk about locality. Um, and this is something that, you know, we we've always talked about, or at least those that really try to gauge interest in, you know, reproducing a species or learning about the biology is you have to understand where they're found, right? Yep. Because hundred percent. if we are trying to reproduce animals in um, our home setting or, you know, in just, an, we have to mimic aspects of a naturalistic aspect um, because rain, humidity, temperature, all of that plays a huge role. Um, and to me, you know, that's where locality information becomes so much more important, especially with the, you know, advances in terms of technology of what we have. I mean, I have on my iPhone the different areas where some of these animals are found just so I can figure out what's going on during that time of the year. Um, because, you know, these animals, mandarins themselves, you know, they really haven't been in herpetoculture that long when you think about a species, right? Like corn snakes. I mean, people have had corn snakes for decades, you know, and beyond decades um, in terms of pets. But when we look at some of these animals, some of these were just kind of brought into the pet trade, you know, late 80s, 90s, and they did not do well. Um, no. And you know, from my experience with these animals, um, I've worked with wild caught animals. I've worked with captive born animals, but the biggest and most challenging part of working with wild caught animals for these is, and this is very much true of any wild caught species. You have to look at the time of the year that the animals are being collected, because if you don't understand what's going on, in the temperate zone where the animals are being collected, you know, for instance, over the years, um, when some of these wild caught, um, Asian species were being offered, it would either be hot summer months or towards the winter months in China. And whenever you're looking and if you do research and really do a deep dive into, um, you know, the import export of animals, it is a very stressful thing on these. Oh my animals. gosh. Yes. Um, you know, a, for instance, in terms of, uh, some of the African species, um, I mean, they're being collected in the bush and then brought and basically hung in trees and bags because people think that the animals need the warmth. So the sun's going to warm them. So they're defecating the urates and mm -hmm. all in a bag, which isn't being cleaned and no water. So, you know, that animal, by the time it comes into, you know, the hands of the importer, um, it's now probably spent months dehydrated without food. The system is shocked because of parasite loads. And then when you get it here, you know, 
you want to rehydrate that animal. Um, but you have to be cautious in rehydrating an animal because you can destroy their kidneys too as well. Um, and this comes into the challenges of establishing wild caught animals and kind of presenting the first uh, captive born um, offerings of a species. You know, um, I think when in, in an earlier uh, episode, when we had uh, Chad uh, Fushan, um, you know, he talked about even some of the mandarins being like zombies because really <laughs> they were. They were dehydrated. They had no water. Um and you had to slowly bring them up. Um, so establishing, for instance, like some of the wild caught, you know, it, it really was a matter of trying to identify where the animals were collected. And sometimes an importer or exporter aren't going to be able to provide that information or are not willing to provide that information to you. Um, but with establishing some of the wild caught mandarins, it was more or less keeping them very cold and, and slowly establishing them and really trying to decrease any sort of um, external stimulant that might actually shock them. And that could have been light. It could have also been um, not having deep enough bedding for the animals. Um, so by having them set up in a matter where they were able to dig down deeper and for instance, peat moss and really kind of getting away and having multiple shelters and aspects of that allowed for those animals to become more attuned to captivity. And also by providing food, because, you know, when you think about these animals, I mean, there, there's definitely a reason why they have the saddles, the way that they do with color, <laughs> because when you think about where these animals are found, I mean, it's leaf litter, Right. I mean, so they're trying to blend in as much as po possible to that. I mean, it makes us find them an attractive animal, but I mean, that's where you now pull in the ecological aspects of where they're mm. found and really start to look at why they have the colors, why they have the patterns. And that plays a huge role in locality of animals too, as well. So on that same note, if, if, in China or Vietnam or in, like wherever you are where mandarins live, what kind of habitat are they actually in? Are they in like steamy jungles or are they in uh, temperate forests? Are they up on mountaintops? Uh, like what kind of ecosystem would you find these guys in? Yeah, so that's kind of the cool part. You're going to find them in pretty much all of them um, <laughs> because – you know, and, and this is like the interesting part about social media in terms of presenting, in terms of people that are out there doing field work. I mean, even Kevin, for instance, he's posted pictures of these animals in sewer drains in terms of <laughs> stuff like that, you know. But the aspect of that is, you know, you could have a jungle, right? A jungle isn't going to mean that the temperature is 90 plus degrees inside of a jungle. You're going to have areas where it's cooler. You're also thinking about where they are in terms of level. I mean, they're a very secretive animal, right? But they're also an animal that feeds upon, um, you know, rodents in a um, predatory nature where they're, they're looking for nests, right? They're nest waiters. Yeah. 
Um, and that's, that's something in terms of, you know, when you really start to look at or ask questions, I mean, I, I get questions sent to me all the time about, Hey, my Mandarin's not feeding. I just bought this blah, blah, blah. And you ask about, well, how do you have it set up? What are the temperatures? Who'd you buy it from? Is it even established? Um, and you really start to pull in those pieces of information because temperature throws off, you know, huge uh, food swings. Barometric pressure throws off animals. Um, not having enough um, seclusion or uh, hiding areas. I've actually moved away from some of the aspects of using hide boxes. And part of that is because... I think a more important part of that is actually having something that the animal can actually feel against its back yeah. as a means of more support. So I use cork bark in a lot of my uh, setups. It's easy to clean. It's cheap if it's disposable. Um, but the biggest thing is that animal is going to go underneath that cork. It's going to feel that weight on its body. And if you think about it from, um, you know, Field work, what do we typically do when we're hunting for snakes? We lay out boards <laughs> and those animals want that weight on the back of it. And that's where we find it. Um, but I think that's, you know, important when you start to look at um, setting up animals, for instance. Um, but this also brings in why locality is important. Why is locality important to know? Um, you know, it's very interesting when I look at the hobby itself. Um, because over the years I've taken time and sourced out and tried to find wild caught specimens, or I looked for a uh, lineage of different animals of locality to actually pull that in. Um, and I think once you have some of that, I mean, it paints a bigger picture because, you know, you can find out where that animal is from, from, like I said, I mean, and then you have the difference between a jungle and a desert, right? There you go. So then you're, you know, you're able because, you know, we talk about humidity with a lot of these Asian species. There is a huge difference between humidity <laughs> and sobbing wet substrate. Right? Moisture versus humidity. <laughs> yeah. I, I talk about this in my herb class, actually. <laughs> you know, so it's something you want. And I'm, I start to look at, um, temperate, you know, patterns that are actually happening in, for instance, I mean, Sichuan, um, Hunan, um, you know, and you look at these different areas in China and they're not what you would think they are. Um, you know, in, in, in terms of setting up animals, um, a lot of people know that I, I do use racks and I use racks just because of the commercialization aspect of it for ease of care. But also for some of my stuff, I'm looking at propagating the animals, right? So there's kind of the, the sway or, um, preference in terms of keeping because if I wanted to look at the animals and I, I do have cages, I would typically set them up in a natural vivaria so that they had plants, they had things, um, you know, and make it easy for observation. But because of the nature, of these animals, you know, they want to burrow, they want to dig, they want to actually have that um, elusive nature of hiding. 
And by presenting them with different hide areas and sources of that nature, I think it only helps their well-being in the captive setting. Very, very cool. Agree with you, as always. (laughs) So one bit of biology with these guys that I find really interesting is um, I kind of view them more, like ecologically, they're more equivalent to our milk snakes and king snakes than they necessarily would be to our North American rat snakes. Because the way that like Pantherophis and Lampropeltis have kind of divvied up resources when you find them living alongside each other, which you do. I mean, even here in West Virginia, we have the Eastern milk snake and we have Eastern rat snake or gray rats, whatever the hell rat snake we have. Um, uh, I think we have Spoloides where I'm sitting right now. Uh, but anywho, and with those milks, they're far more fossorial. They're on the ground. I mean, I'm not saying they won't climb. They so, totally will climb, but they're kind of you know, navigating through just on the surface, maybe going down a, a tunnel. And like you said, the nestrating biology piece, they, they, they find a rodent tunnel, probably pick up one hell of a chemical cue. There's a bunch of babies in there, go and eat them. And that's what the mandarins are doing as well. So this is kind of a from left field question, so I'm sorry if it catches you off guard, but I don't think it will. So where mandarins live, there are plenty of other species of Asiatic rat snakes living alongside them. Uh, correct? Like beauty snakes and, and deones yes. and, and you know those guys? Okay. So that's part of the reason why I kind of view them as the, the lamps of the rat snake world, which is also why you would have that whole thing where the, the substrate matters. So we'll, we'll be talking about substrate later, um, but I want people to kind of think about what we're doing now. So with these guys, uh, we a lot of times people will see, like, Vietnam's a great example. They'll, they'll see that these mandarin rat snakes live in Vietnam. They then picture some Vietnamese jungle and automatically assume that at some point during the day we've got to get the temperature up to 89 and 90 degrees. But with them being on the ground burrowing, the microhabitats for them are probably understanding that concept's far more important than cranking your Mandarin up to 90 because it's from Vietnam. C- correct? 100%. Correct? And okay. that's, <laughs> that's you know, when you really start to deep dive in some of this in terms of conversations, um, you know, yes, and I, I agree with this kind of um, representative conversation between these two um, species or genre, um, because yes, when you look at different populations, different, um, ecological advents, you know, you will have species that fill a specific role right within that trait. Um, and to be very frank, you know, even expanding off of that, I mean, the people that did the best with mandarins right off the bat when they came into the hobby were milk snake keepers. There you um, go. <laughs> and when you really even get even deeper dive, um, you know, some keepers that kept red milks, for instance, which are notoriously hard to get started, or some of the nablaki or uh, pyros and stuff like that. When these animals were first brought in, it's not you know, to say that 
the natural biology of that species didn't promote an interest in those keepers because, right. I mean, typically when we expand our collections, it's usually because there might be a species that is similar to that animal and it makes it, um, more of ease or, um, aspect of replicating certain care for that specific uh, new addition that you maybe have some familiarity with. Yep. So I just kind of wanted to get that little piece in there. Um, so is there anything else regarding biology of these guys that you'd want to discuss or are we ready to dive into now we're going to go to having one? Uh, I think we can deep dive into having one because I think, you know, when you keep the animals, it brings up aspects of the biology of where they're found. Um, and there's reasons why you do certain keeping, um, or, or traits of keeping, you know, that help to promote that animal's success within captivity. Okay. So moving on to husbandry, then first thing I have on here is, what kind of enclosure do you keep these things in? So let's go from just add a little bit of structure to this. But for all these different things, when we discuss them, why don't we go from like, you got a mandarin fresh out of the egg. What are you going to keep it in? And then as it reaches kind of sub adulthood, what are you going to keep it in? And then ultimately it's an adult. What are we going to keep it in? Yeah. So just so- general um, substrate enclosure like what like is it a tub is it a viv is it a tank like what mm-hmm. what is it on those fronts yeah so one of the more and again this is again you know looking at how your keeping styles are um because I, I don't think there's anything wrong with cages or racks you know it's just the animal needs to be stable and comfortable that's the biggest part right with any sort of natural biology of keeping animals um, so typically when I hatch out mandarins, I typically leave that whole clutch together. Um, and I think there is something to be said about that too, as well. Um, I think in terms of raising hatchlings in a community setting, sometimes there's benefits to that. Um, and I, I think there's still more to be studied on that and learned about that of how that actually relates. Um, but I'll typically enclose hatchlings within a, a six quart hatchling tub, um, very common. And I do things a little bit differently uh, now as I continue to m- mature or grow upon my, my keeping style. Um, okay. There is a YouTube video about mandarins I did with RMB reptiles um, available on YouTube, but the aspect of it is I typically set them up with a water bowl um, I do use aspen shavings now um, because I think the natural burrowing aspect plays a big part in this. And I set up multiple pieces of cork flats or pieces under there so the animals can actually come off. I also do a deli cup with sphagnum moss inside of it with a small hole in it. And I do that for a couple of reasons. Um, one is to have a moist hide. And mm-hmm. the other one is security. So the animals are able to naturally burrow in loose substrate, right? They also have cork bark flats that offer some security on their back. And one of the challenges that 
you know, some people have found over the years is working with hatchling mandarins is getting them to feed. Um, so I, if you really start to look at, again, this is where locality plays a role. When the animals are hatching, it's mm-hmm. dead, dead on summer and is probably 90 plus degrees outside. So those animals are finding from my perspective, finding burrows of which they can actually hide. And if they're burrowing down, they're likely in a colder area too as well. Um, now, typically I will not have any sort of heat on these animals. Um, you know, I typically would just leave them at room temperature and typically room temperature in that specific room is about 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and Typically, I'll leave them that way for a few months, and then we get into August, September timeframe. And for feeding then at that point in time, um, I'll typically offer fresh um, newborn pinkies, and I'll put the pinkies with some of the used rodent bedding and have live pinkies in there with all of the mandarins and let them do what they naturally would do, which is date upon a nest. Um, and I think that's something, you know, when you really start to pull upon it, um, force feeding is like, is the worst thing you can do. Yeah, I'm not on that seat. either. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in my house, um, especially with hatchlings, you either eat or you die because mm-hmm. not every animal is going to make it to adulthood. Right. And typically if we are force feeding, if we're doing all these things, putting bad genes or traits into the hobby and you're breeding bad traits and genes in the hobby. And now you're getting even more difficult feeders going forward. Um, something, you know, we've talked about in the past with tricolor hog nose, um, certain, mm-hmm. certain, um, subsets of that or lines do better. Um, you know, and I, I'm, you know, from talking to other people and I'm sure if we had Clint on here, he'd be like, no, Matt's got a line of mandarins that eats. That's yeah. true. Right? Yeah. But, but there, there's something to be said off of that too as well, because if you're looking at how the animals hatch, what is their natural biology? I mean, we're not 20 generations in of captive breeding some of these animals, you know? So when you think about it, they still have some of that uh, natural instinct still ingrained in them over time you know, some of that will start to breed out with more um, successful captive breedings. But at this point in time, you start to look at the natural cues of the animals and what they're looking for. Um, now, that also being said, for hatchlings, typically you can offer frozen thawed pinks in that same sort of setting because that animal is going to be looking for small prey items of which to actually eat upon or predate upon. Um, but that's typically the hatchling setup. Um, and then over time, I start to increase the size of the terraria. So if you were looking at like a terrarium to keep hatchling mandarins, like a five gallon or 10 gallon tank in terms of uh, mm-hmm. size distribution, that would be perfect for a hatchling. Um, as the animal starts to grow and mature, you know, typically for most of the Chinese locality mandarins, you could do a 20 gallon long for instance, which is very common in terms of um, topics of snake enclosures. But in that aspect, this is where we start to look at different 
uh, localities, and some of this might be natural phenotypes too as well, um, because, for instance, some of the Hunan uh, locality mandarins that I work with, they sexually mature, and the average adult size is under three foot, um, typically about two oh. and a half feet. So it's a smaller uh, mandarin's um, locality or, or population, if you will. And then if you start to look at some of the Sichuan animals, um, there are two different populations that I work with in my collection. I have what's kind of cons always been considered like a northern Sichuan, which has more red in the okay. um, animal's background color. Those typically will top off about three feet um, in terms of size. And then some of the um, more centrally located uh, Sichuan, some of those can get three and a half to four feet in terms of one. And they look very different. Um, you know, if you look at some of the images of those, I mean, this is where understanding different populations. I'm sure there's so much that we don't even know in terms of revealing yeah. some of these. But you know, when you look at some of these Sichuan animals of the hobby, it's a very light gray background animal with very large yellow diamonds on its back. And that's typically the hull type or what we actually look at of classification. The hard part in the hobby as of today is so many people have muddled this stuff um, and mm -hmm. haven't kept, you know, locality specific traits or phenotypes looking like that animal and have crossed some stuff and that's fine. It's just when you advertise it, things yes, stand exactly. out like a red flag of, are you just advertising this to try to get more money by saying it's this locality, which so many people have done because over the years I've seen people sell animals and now all of a sudden they got locality specific animals. <laughs> and those two things do not, <laughs> They do not jive. Yeah, no. Um, so, but, you know, then you get into some of the Vietnamese animals or locality specific. And some of my males are over six and a half feet long, seven foot for one or two of the males. So you're looking at a very large Mandarin too as well. Um, so that's why, you know, when you really start to take that um, dive down that road, you know, sometimes that locality information might be play an important role for you when even trying to pursue a new pet for your collection or a new breeding project, because size is going to play a role here in terms of what you offer in terms of a enclosure size. Um, for instance, like my Vietnamese mandarins, the adults are all in CB70s, and it's because of the size of the animal as it matures. Um you know, and I mean, we're not looking at, you know, a huge girthy animal. It's the length. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, most of the Vietnamese that I, I have in my collection, I sought out um, specifically for the Hong Valley Sapa locality animals because those were the largest. Um, they also have some of the best coloration, which over time, by selectively breeding for the best yellow traits, the best black, the best... Um, red or more white in terms of some of the exanthic forms. Um, you know, there is a lot of things that you can do with this, but I think in terms of my collection and how I perceive it is I am keeping those localities very separate from one another and not interbreeding them because the best thing for that is actually to enhance those traits. So, yeah. Well, that and, and by, 
by maintaining the localities as localities, uh, we end up not having just one archetype mandarin rat snake in herpetoculture today. We have multiple forms of the same species. That's what I think. That's why I like the locality game. Um, yeah. So. Well, right, and cool. when you start to cross localities, then you can start to create issues for yourselves in terms of yeah. feeding behavior. Well, um, it's, it's funny you bring that up because we are, like I said, that I'm, I'm finishing up this genetics research with the crawdad and I'm working with one of the professors here. He was one of my former students, which is like the coolest thing in the world, but that's an aside. And we were talking about this thing called an outbreeding depression, which I don't, we always talk about inbreeding, inbreeding, inbreeding. And it is absolutely, it is, it is bad. I also think that it is very misunderstood um, when it comes to how it actually works. But there's an, there's the opposite of an inbreeding depression, which is an outbreeding depression, which is when you basically take organisms from two portions of the range and then you put them together. And obviously, great example, this is all hypothetical, but um, you mentioned the locality that only gets to be three feet. Um, if you were to take a male from there and then try to breed it with one of your Vietnamese animals that routinely get to be seven feet, it may work. You may get you know, viable offspring, um, or it could literally be that the gene pairs that are associated with size in that particular situation, when they come together after a reproductive event, you, it's just not possible for them to align and for you to get viability. Um, so in that regard, you have an outbreeding depression. That was kind of a very cheap 30 second explanation of what that is. <laughs> but at the same time, that's the other danger you have when you start taking locality one, locality two, locality three, kind of merging them all together, you may run the risk of getting a dynamic where it just simply won't work genetically and you end up not getting any offspring from all of these breeding. So if we maintain the localities, obviously you're maintaining that, <clears throat> that the genetics associated with that place and they obviously work because the animals live there. So there's that. Um, I do want to move on to something which... I, I will interject a little bit on my limited knowledge of mandarins. I will, full disclosure, not kept the species. But one of the aspects of it that I always thought maybe I should get into these animals is that I, when I think mandarin, I think cool. Like that, I, I, I literally think this is an animal that I am not putting any extra heat onto. But then at the same time, they live in Vietnam and in, in, in parts of China where in the summertime it totally gets, you know, up to 90 degrees. So thermal husbandry for these animals is, is pretty important. So along those lines, I'd like for you to talk about two things specifically. Let's talk about kind of the thermal environment that we need to keep them in, which you've already alluded to a little bit. But then another thing yeah. I'd like to discuss is lighting. Um, do, do, do people use lighting? Is there a benefit to lighting? Is there not a benefit to lighting in your opinion? So let's first talk about thermal environment and then end your discussion with lighting. Yeah. So in terms of thermal environment, I do think it is important to offer a, a natural gradient right across an enclosure. Um, over the years of keeping animals, I am still under the impression that we keep animals way too hot. Um, and going forward, I'm actually changing the, some of the keeping strategies that I have in terms of my collection. 
For instance, for most of my uh, BOAs and even some of my Pythons, the hottest that I keep their hotspot at is 84, 84 to 85. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, think that uh, these animals, well, certain species need things like 90 plus degrees. And I, I just don't buy it. Um, but in terms of these animals, having that aspect where they can go to a cooler area to a warmer and by warmer, I'm thinking like 72 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit max. But when you really start to watch your animals and naturally look at them of what area of the enclosure they're actually using, you're going to start to find that that animal is primarily on the cooler side unless it has taken a large meal. Um, and that's really when, you know, these thermodynamic discussions really start to get in terms of discussion of, you know, why do we need this? And really all you're doing is just kind of boosting its metabolism slightly. Um, But that also poses a danger with hatchlings is if you have a hatchling that is not feeding and you have a warm environment, you're increasing the metabolism of that specific animal system and if it's not feeding, it's going to start to waste away. Um, and this is typically like that discussion of why I don't put fresh hatchlings on any sort of heat for the first couple of months and then start to slowly offer food. Now, what I find is very interesting and impressive about mandarin rat snakes is even if that animal is in bromation right now, at, you know, low 60s, high 50s, if I fed that animal, it will still be able to digest that rodent. Um, you know, and really when you start to think about these animals in the wild, I mean, snakes do in some localities of populations of certain snake species, if a meal is offered, they will eat it, even yes, if they're in. So, you know, it's just what's poses the issue or the conversation point of that is, you know, when we start to think about animals being in brumation, we think cold and not being able to digest and things of that nature. But in the wild, some of these animals are predating. They're still feeding during brumation. Um, so in terms of temperature, in terms of offering, you know, typically if you can get towards like mid sixties to mid seventies, you're fine. Um, realistically, what makes a lot of these Asian snake species very interesting for a keeper or maybe even a new keeper into the hobby is you don't run the expense of heat, um, you know, which is either um, light heating bulbs like UVA bulbs or undertank heaters. So if you're a parent and you're exploring a new species to keep, most of these Asian species are, a no brainer because now you've just decreased the cost of your initial startup on the animal too as well. But also there's so much in terms of natural beauty to these animals, which has really pushed their uh, growth into the hobby. Um, Switching gears into the lighting discussion. um, So I am a very big proponent of UVB um, or or full spectrum lighting. Um, and I, I think it's very important because even when you start to run in the discussions of um, depression, for instance, this is like an interesting aspect, but it is true. For some 
physical or um, cues therapies that uh, therapists provide, it's actually full spectrum lighting for people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that goes into the aspect and discussions of um, light sources, um, different nature of that. But, you know, there are companies, um, there's a company called Waveform. And anyone that is interested to check it out, it is pretty cool. But there are so many different bulbs on the market that offer so many different types of full spectrum lighting, you know, even outside of reptile keeping, coral keeping, all of that. Um, like even with parrots, right? They have like specific bulbs to actually present that. But I do keep um, full spectrum lighting in my snake room. Um, I do have recessed lighting throughout that room, but all those bulbs are full spectrum. Um, and part of that is because during the um, active season for these animals, I typically run a 12 hour on and off light cycle within the snake room altogether. Um, now, discussion of like how much is too much, how much is too little. You know, these are a um, cryptic species, right? Like we talked about. Um, all of my racks have holes drilled through the fronts, right? And this is something we will talk about in terms of uh, husbandry too, but lighting is going through those holes. And lighting is also coming through the top where there are air holes too as well. Um, do they need more? Do they need less? I don't know because I, I haven't done blood chemistry on these specific animals. But I do think, though, even if you have racks set up and you're doing light cycles in a room, it's not going to hurt the animal. If anything, you're providing um, more beneficial um interaction with that animal so that they are actually naturally cycling and, and viewing things of that matter. Very cool. Yeah. One of the things I've always thought about is like the um, ARS racks or freedom breeder racks. Those guys, we have a handful of them here at the school. Uh, at, and then I use the FB 90 tubs at home that have the literal built in window on them. But I, I, I've always wanted to like explore those particular rack setups. There's no reason why they couldn't have lighting. You could very easily incorporate an LED or, I mean, how we have LED tape now for crying out loud. Like, um, but that's a whole other conversation for another day. So, uh, okay, cool. This is going well. Um, all right. So we've already alluded to it a little bit, but let's talk about feeding and feeding schedule. So it sounds like neonates are one of these kind of classic examples of a temperate species where they come out of the egg and they may or may not actually get food in the first couple months that they're alive. Uh, many of these animals have yolk reserves when they're, ha when they hatch. So it's not like they need to eat that soon thereafter. Um, but maybe first talk about, uh, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with you talking about it again <laughs> because it's one of the absolute, uh, it's what I know it's one of the things that kind of made me take a step back from purchasing mandarins many moons ago when I was in my Asian rat phase. Um, so let's just discuss the babies and their eating. So, so just as a recap, um, you oftentimes will have them hatch. I love the idea of they go a month or two and then you present the pinks and 
you know, together with some vetting to replicate what they would find in, in nature. There's probably a good chance in nature that they're also feeding on some kind of ectotherm or maybe a bug or two or a worm, who knows. Um, but talk a little bit about the whole brumation to induce feeding piece. I think that's, I've always found this interesting and I'm actually doing it for the first time right now with, uh, with some, um, uh, they're Asians, uh, Bimaculata, twin spotted rat snakes that we had hatch here that were kind of crappy feeders. So I threw them in the cold room downstairs and they're about to come out actually in a couple weeks. But why do you do that? What's the purpose of it? What's it replicating? All that stuff. Yeah. So for you, you nailed it on one other aspect of it and that is reproduction and incubation of eggs. Um, I incubate my eggs at a substantially lower temperature than what many other people would do. And, you know, for that, typically you'll get larger, more robust babies as a result. And that has been published in literature. That is a known aspect of um, incubating eggs too as well. But as you kind of talked about, that baby is fully absorbing that yolk sac too as well. And as a result of that, that animal is pulling in more nutrients and being getting larger. Now, my thought by incubating at lower temperatures and having those animals hatch out a little bit more robust is that animal doesn't necessarily need prey items immediately either. Um, That's fair. And I, and I think that, you know, one of the things that sometimes we probably need a self-reflection upon is how we actually incubate eggs in temperature too as well because – that could also promote more challenging feeders too as well. Um, but the aspect of cooling the animal is twofold. Um, one is I don't want that animal's metabolism at such a significant high point where it's wasting those resources that it has just um, hatched out with and is growing. So I want to slow down that um, category. So by cooling them, I'm slowing down their metabolism too as well. Now, this also, their hatching time in the wild would be at a level when certain heat aspects are going on, right? 90 plus degrees in some of these geographical areas. And those animals are going to be looking for areas to hide and basically seclude themselves. Um, because even in those warmer months, um, anyone that has ever bred rodents should know that the most optimal temperature to breed rodents at is 60 to 70 degrees in terms of that uh, <laughs> aspect. Because then you start to um, lose sperm, too, as well, and it makes it more challenging. So it could also be a part of that natural biology where the um, naturally occurring prey items unlimited resource to as well. Um, so I have done that over time. And even in terms of um, some of the literature or things that Kloss even wrote about in, you know, the monograph of the Laffey, I mean, he also presents this idea or thought to as well. Um, and, you know, to promote that, you know, when something works, you continue to keep doing it, right? I mean, that's, that's our... Uh, natural hypothesis too as well, right? When you want to present an idea and think of something. Um, 
but it challenges us. And if something is working, I think it's something you should try at least. So for some of those people that may have challenging feeders, as hatchlings, you may want to try cooling the respective animal. You may even want to try offering a prey item at cooler temperature and see if that animal even responds to them. Cool. So if, if you cool them, is it a full-blown, I'm cooling them three months deal, or is it a abbreviated amount of time? So we're just going to cool them, maybe even represent like a short cold snappers. I don't know. Um, yeah. So, so you, what, what is the length of time that you would do it? Yeah. So over time, I've, I've tried this a few different ways. Um, I've done just a month in terms of cooling and I've done two months in terms of cooling. But typically what I do is after a month, I'll typically look at the animal and see how that animal is looking physically. Right. Um, and sometimes I may not even increase the temperature, but I may offer prey items, see if they respond to it. Um, because you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that animal starts to feed and is in that cooling area, it may actually start to promote like, hey, maybe I can move this animal out of this cooling area or cooling cycle because this animal now has responded. Um, now, if that animal doesn't respond, typically I'll just leave it in cooling for the extra month and then just continue that cycle of trial and error. Too, as well. Interesting. What, what temperature are we cooling if we're cooling for this purpose? 60 degrees is typically what I degrees? shoot for. Mm-hmm. All right. Cool. So, so, so anyone that has a basement or cement floor, uh, typically, if you had that enclosure, you put it right on the floor and you've got 60 degrees. All right. Nice. So let's move on to the mandarins that decide they want to live and are actually eating. <laughs> what, what is the um, for sub adults? Uh, what's your prey item of choice and what is your frequency? Yeah, so prey item of choice is going to be rodents. And I typically feed my females um, weekly. The males, I've started to go back and redo some of my thought processes and how I keep my animals. But I typically feed my males every other week or every third week. And I think part of this is because I think we overfeed in the hobby. Yes. Um, something that... You know, when we look at the diet of respective rodents, um, they're not being fed what a natural wild-caught rodent would be feeding upon. Um, and, you know, from that aspect, you know, there's that avenue where if we're feeding a rodent a high-fatty diet, that animal is high-fat, and we're feeding it to a snake, which now has more fat in terms of the mm-hmm. fat growth. And anyone has ever dissected a snake, a fat snake especially, it is very interesting in terms of how fat actually is created in the body of a snake. Because, and this I think also goes into those conversations uh, specifically for issues with um, egg retention um, and, and, you know, issues with breeding habits. Maybe males have lost their sperm count too as well. They're not as fertile. Um, it's just over time, I've decided to just cut back on feeding because I think we feed these animals too heavy. Um, and, you know, when you look at some animals, we've seen some very beefy snakes out there. Um, 
So I typically feed smaller prey items than what normally. So instead of feeding adult mice, I typically feed smaller medium mice or may even offer multiple prey items versus offering a large prey item. Um, now, with most of the Chinese locality animals, those are going to be mice. Most of the Vietnamese animals, those are going to be rats because those animals are much larger, yeah, too, as well. So, okay. So then the, the approach would be if you had, like, a four-foot mandarin that could easily eat an adult mouse. Um, we can feed it an adult mouse, but you, it's also it's also good practice Maybe go two medium mice or three small adult mice. Yes. Is that, that fair? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's a leaner meal when you really think about it. Um, you know, feeding a older prey item that has a lot of fat storages in it really isn't helping your success going forward with the breeding of the animal. Have you ever tried um, things like quail or chicks? Or so is it just I, these guys are raiding nests, they're rodent, the rodentivores, so we're just going to stick with the rodents kind of thing. So I've offered quail, chicks, um, and to be frank with the mandarins, I've never gotten a very good feeding response off of using those prey items. Well, that makes um, sense. Yeah. Total, yeah. Okay, so. Um, and then also covered, as a commentary, um, you know, one of the questions I had early on, because it is known with some species, is sometimes hatchlings will feed on, um, you know, crickets or mealworms, right? So I have actually tried that with hatchlings, thinking and wondering if that would actually help in terms of getting hatchlings started. And it never worked. Never worked. (laughs) Gotcha. Makes kind of sense. So so we've covered enclosures, thermal environment, when done feeding, um, so, so now we're going to move on to um, the breeding of these these animals. So let's just go through. Why don't we do this from they've come out of brumation. So we're going to start with like what would happen in the spring with actually putting animals together and then kind of go through the process until they're going down for brumation and describe what brumation actually is for these guys. Yeah. So bringing up animals in the spring um, Typically, I'll leave my males in brumation a little bit longer than the females. And part of that is because I want to get a little bit more, a couple more meals in the females. This way they're, they're going, but also keeping that male down cooler because that once you start to raise the temperature, you could potentially create issues with sperm, the fertility of the male itself. Um, and over the next couple of months, so we're looking at, you know, March, April, um, March, April, um, May month timeframe, I'll start to actually introduce males with females. Now, <clears throat> I am a huge proponent of keeping more males than females. Yes. And part of that is because you never know if it's the female or the male that might be having fertility issues. So what I've done is I'll cycle multiple males through a female's enclosure. And biologically, that also creates sperm competition. And this is Mm -hmm. something that has been explored in the literature, too, as well. Um, But it also, I think, triggers some of the males to have a more aggressive approach toward breeding, especially because of scent trailing. 
Um, so anyone that ever wants to read about scent trailing, there are so many different oh. publications on that with garter snakes even too. Tons um, of garters. Yeah. So, but I'll typically run males and females and I'll leave them together for uh, weeks at a time. Um, you know, if I fed them, I'll typically leave the female for 48 hours before reintroducing a male to that enclosure. Um, but this is now where locality starts to play an important role because the Chinese locality animals typically breed in the later portion of the spring months. And Vietnamese animals typically will not start breeding until the summer months, too, as well. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, and I think part of this, you know, when you really start to look at ecology and temperate zones and things of that nature, even though we're still over, you know, China, Vietnam, we're not very far from one another. But I'm sure even with some of those different populations, it may just be the availability of natural resources. It could be rain seasons, too, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to promote that animal to start you know, triggering those sensory aspects to start looking for a mate too as well. Um, the other thing off of that is in terms of breeding mandarins is mandarins sometimes will actually bite on the back of the neck of a female to actually hold the animal um, during the breeding cycle. Um, so that is something that you may see. It's nothing to be worried about. However, during the breeding cycle, I would be very cautious to make sure that you actually have correctly sexed snakes, um, because if you would put two males together, one of the males will likely be killed. Um, I have seen that, too, as well. Wow. So they they beat the hell out of each other. That's kind of crazy. You don't really hear about that happening with colubrids all that often. Um I mean, maybe with dry market and stuff like that, but wow, that's depressing, but cool at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So they've come together, typical 60 day incubation or yeah, so longer. Once we so get typically for incubation of the eggs, I mean, you're typically looking at like a 60 day you know, to get the eggs and then 60 to 80 days in terms of incubation of the respective eggs. Um, and I say 80 because of the fact that um, incubating at cooler temperatures, you know, will typically provide that extra length of time for the animals to hatch. Yes. All right. And then we've already talked about what happens when they hatch and, you know, all that kind of jazz. So what is it? This is actually something we haven't discussed yet. What's a typical clutch? So big eggs, small eggs, and how many? Yeah, so this was something someone asked um, in terms of different localities when they asked about, well, if these Vietnamese animals are so much bigger, do they have larger clutches? And the answer to that is the size doesn't matter of the animal. Because, um, okay. you know, when you look at the follicular development of the eggs inside of the female, the size is not going to matter. It's just what does that ovulate at that point in time. Uh, gotcha. So, so representing and reviewing that uh, kind of presents the typical clutch is anywhere. I've had some females only lay five eggs. I've had some females lay 12 eggs. Um, so it really kind of depends on what's going on with that animal uh, too as well. There really are no predictive forces of that. Um, but I do also, and this 
challenges some of the thoughts and processes. I actually put my females into brumation this year uh, thinner than what most people would. And I did that because I still think that, you know, with the overfeeding of animals and things of that nature, I want to start to work and see how much that actually interacts or plays with that animal during the breeding cycle. Um, because I, from my perspective, I think if you're, you went in and this is, I'm not saying like a super thin snake, but I'm saying like, yeah. you don't need all that fat bodies to actually be there. But I'm wondering if it actually helps and helps with the induction of um, fecundity of the animal and how receptive they are to breeding. Um, but I'm also very curious, too, as well, upon clutch sizes on these animals, um, because I've, I'm starting to wonder and think that maybe we're overfeeding at the wrong times of the years. Oh. Because if we're feeding more towards, you know, the breeding cycle and timeline of that, that animal might start to trigger and realize, hey, I've got food resources available. I should be able to increase my uh, follicular development too as well. That's cool. I like that. We'll see what happens, but yeah. you don't know until you try. <laughs> well, that, that this is the fun part of doing this. It's, it's so much more, to me anyway, rewarding when you aren't just keeping the animal in a box and giving it a mouse. And then, you know, that's the extent of, when you're actually like really trying to provide the best possible care by taking biology into consideration, just thinking, thinking, thinking. Uh, there's nothing better than when you kind of come up with these ideas and then they get validated. And at the same time, you come up with these ideas and they're not validated, but that might shift you off to another idea. Like that to me is is kind of where the fun part of herpetoculture comes into play. But yeah. I digress. So this has been great. Um, now we're going to end. Uh, you've already kind of alluded to uh, the different localities, but um, we, we briefly mentioned the the different morphs, if you will. Um, is there any, would you mind just kind of going over xanthics and, and all the kind of different paint jobs that are out there for these animals? Yeah, so one thing within the Chinese representative animals is there are a number of phenotypes out there. And some of that's related to the size of the diamond. Some of them have much larger. Some of them have smaller. Some of them have more red in terms of the coloration in terms of background of that animal. A lot of those traits are naturally occurring phenotypes based upon locality and based upon selective breeding have really kind of driven, you know, more high red animals in terms of Chinese or more uh, light gray animals that have larger diamonds on, on their dorsal uh, pattern. But when we get into some of the Vietnamese locality animals, we start to see even more distribution in terms of phenotypes as well as some morphs. Um, now, there is an exanthic mandarin, um, and this I don't think is very well understood. And personally, I don't think the gene should actually be termed exanthic um, because the animal hatches as a bright yellow animal. And then over time, the yellow is actually lost in the animal's uh, background coloration, leaving the animal with a more high white background too as well um, and that's what we have termed as an exanthic yeah. gene but you know is that a true exanthic i think we're just putting a term with it because it's now black and white snake um, and just representing it that way 
Um, there is also xanthic, which would be high yellow animals. Um, now, I think when we really start to get into this discussion, I think some of that is also there are exanthic animals. And then I th- from my perspective, there are line bred animals that are much more high contrast animal. Um, now, <clears throat> over time, some people have actually gotten into and unfortunately, the, the breeder that I bought some of these animals from uh, no longer works with them and unfortunately doesn't work with mandarins in general anymore. Um, but there are some animals that were called funky mandarins at one point in time. Okay. Um, and they came with a very high price tag, but the patterns were just like way out there um, in terms <laughs> of either stripes or like the dorsal diamonds just disappeared and, and went from black to yellow, um, which still doesn't make sense to me how that could actually occur. <laughs> but um so they were termed funky, um, and I've, I've kept some of these and have kept breeding them back to back to actually see what I could, cre- could create. Um, and there is also someone had termed about it, uh, termed it a fader yellow at one point in time because mm. the yellow, and I think this might actually be a hypo, um, but the yellow itself turns to like a pastel coloration too as well. Um, now the hard part for my collection is having many of these different genes or traits and selectively breeding for some of this stuff. The only way that you can create new is by crossing things. So mm-hmm. the hard part for me now going forward into the future is I have all these genes and I have multi-gene <laughs> animals and then sometimes I hatch out stuff and I have no idea what it is. So. Gotcha. <laughs> So it went from funky to funkier. So <laughs> funky, funkier, <laughs> hyper funky. Um, yeah, there you go. All right. So um, I think we pretty much covered it. Any final thoughts on mandarins? And then I have one more question that you might no, have. No, and I, I think you know anyone that's exploring keeping mandarin rat snakes as uh, a colubrid in their collection, they make great pets. Um, they do handle well, um, but it does take time to work with any animal. Um, but I would say make sure that if you are buying an animal, you're buying an animal from a trusted source and one that actually will actually go over their keeping styles and keeping skills of actually ensuring that the animal is feeding appropriately. Okay. And then the final question from left field, you've kept a lot of Asians, and I'm not going to necessarily ask you which one's your favorite, but on, on the list of, of Asiatic rat snakes, where do mandarins fall as far as are they one of your favorites? Are they your favorite? I mean, you obviously have a lot of them. So yeah. So just speak a bit. Man- to that. Mandarins are one of my favorites, just like the Japanese forest rat snakes. Um, and part of that is actually the trial and error of keeping mandarins. Um, so I am very stubborn about uh, <laughs> if I work with a species, I want to be successful with a species. Um, and when I first received or bought mandarins for the first time, um, I bought them um, from a person that is no longer in the hobby. And the animals were so reluctant to feed 
and I was not able to get any sort of transparency or um, review of how to keep them properly. And they soon perished afterwards. And part of that is because the animals were offered too soon. They weren't feeding. Gotcha. Um, that being said, you know, moving forward off of that, then I ended up being even more stubborn and bought <laughs> wild caught animals that were brought in by Bushmaster. Um, and anyone that has ever kept wild caught mandarins knows that you're running a 50, 50 chance <laughs> on those. Um, but they did live, um, and they did produce. And it was kind of interesting because I was able to become friends with the uh, person that was the exporter originally of the animals. And that's how I was able to find out about locality of those specific gotcha. animals and where they were found. And, and so that's the best type of information that if you can get that. Um, but most times you're not going to be able to secure that type of information. Um, but if you're going to pursue mandarins, pursue captive born animals, and <laughs> purchase them from a reliable source too, as well. Absolutely. Okay. And then how long have you been keeping these guys? Who mandarins? Probably 15 years now. Okay. So anybody that's made it to this point, if you're doing a deep dive, mandarin, or sorry, Matt knows what he's talking about when it comes to these snakes. It's not, you know, he, he's put in over a decade of work with them. Um, and I'm, I don't think that's a secret to anybody, but I always think it's good to kind of give your experience and all that. And you did a, you did herpetoculture a great service today, especially man and snakes. So thank you. I think this went well. Um, that's pretty much it. Uh, so yeah, we're going to have to put me on the hot seat next time, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my my editor for the book, Russ, has said to me multiple times, do not do a podcast on anything in those in that book until the book comes out. And so I have begrudgingly listened to him and, and he is my guide. So uh we gotta wait until that book inevitably comes to fruition for me to do mine. But I don't know. There's only what, like twenty to thirty more tacks so we could do this with Matt with. So you know, yeah. more to come in the future. All right. So this has been the first episode of 2023. Thank you all uh, for sticking with us and, and, and listening. If you made it to this point, I think that this is going to be a great year. Um, really looking forward to future episodes. And I think this was like the perfect way to start the year. I really like this one. So if you need to get a hold of me, um, you know where to do it. Uh, you can find me at Zach Loafman on Facebook, Dr. Crawdad on Instagram, and then you can go the old school route. And look me up online. Uh, just type in Zach Loafman, West Liberty University. Get my email, fire away. As always, looking for graduate students. Um, I'm not going to mention them specifically, but I've been really kind of digging away, trying to get my uh, herp lab set up. And, and I've got some projects on the horizon that are pretty badass. Uh, I have a tendency when I try to get a project to think about when I was getting done with undergrad, what I would have wanted to do. That's part of the, the process. And uh, I would have done like all of these things for my master's thesis. So uh, reach out. Many people have, I've got some people coming that are directors out of this um, podcast. So don't be a stranger. And if they need to get a hold of you, Matt, where will they go to do that? Yeah. Best bet is uh, through Sarpamitra, um, which can be found on Instagram or Facebook. Okay. There you go. 
And as always, I want to thank the Marilia Python Radio Network. We are proud members of the network. Uh, and um, yeah, that's it. So have a wonderful day, good afternoon or evening, whatever time it is you're listening to this episode. Thank you for your time and have a good one. Mm-hmm.